The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a pop-up. First base side foul ground playable. Perez, Santana, Santana makes the catch. Ball game. The Indians have won the American League pennant. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. And a very pleasant good evening, everyone, and welcome to a very special World Series edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, along with Mark Donahue, and we are on the eve, the precipice, of the the 2016 World Series. Let's go down to our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, unbelievable that when we first started this show six years ago, the Reds were the team that were really on the threshold of being in the World Series. But for the first time since we started this show, a team that we are covering is finally in the World Series, and it just happens to be the Cleveland Indians. I find that, quite honestly, to be remarkable. Well, I find it to be very unfair. (laughs) Okay. Congratulations to the Indians and all their fans. Uh, You know, we're talking, you and I, had hoped that this would be the matchup, and, and it was more than hope. It was a, a probability that these two teams, which I think are the two best teams in baseball, that's the way it should be. Uh, I, I don't think you could make an argument that there are there is a better team than the two that are appearing in the World Series, and that's the way you want it. You, you want, in a perfect world, you say the Cubs had the best record in baseball. I don't know where the Indians ranked in that category, but I think they were clearly the best team in the American League. And that makes it for it makes for an exciting World Series when uh, you know you, you have to admire the Giants uh, several years in a row. They they snuck in as a wild card. They did not have the best record in baseball, and they ended up winning the World Series. That's terrific for them. But you do like to see the two best teams square off, and this should be an exciting series just from that statistical perspective alone. Mark, I was impressed with the fact that the Cubs were able to, when they were tied up at 2-2, the way they dominated. Well, they were down 2-1, but they dominated the last three games against the Dodgers. They really got their bats going in that series. Well, it was more than the bats. I mean, the the pitching stepped up. Uh, I mean, that that bullpen was locked down. Uh, Chapman came in and did what he's supposed to do. Everybody did what they were supposed to do, including the hitters. Uh, they play great defense, and you know that's something people underestimate about the Cubs. That because of their offensive power, because of that pitching staff, you forget this team is an outstanding defensive team. And that infield—that's one of the best infields I've ever seen, uh, defensively and offensively. And uh, th- th- that team is going to be around for a long time because of their youth. And uh, you know what we're witnessing is a team on the precipice, as you, stealing your word of an updraft of where they're going to be over the next three or four or five years, and they're going to make life miserable for for teams in the Central Division. Well, the Indians, of course, won the American League pennant by beating Toronto four games to one. They won it three to nothing on Wednesday. Mark, Ryan Merritt, 
Let's talk about him. A kid that had 24 years old, the biggest thing that has happened in his life up until last Wednesday was becoming engaged, and he comes out after his one start in the major leagues was on the final day of the regular season, and that was in Kansas City. He ends up going seven innings, winning it, finds out two days before Game 5 that he's pitching in Game 5, and he gave the Indians exactly what Terry Francona wanted. It's interesting how when you have a new pitcher facing a hitter he's never faced before, the pitcher always has the advantage. He, he His stuff is going to stay the same. The hitter just doesn't know his stuff. Now, what happens after, it could be after going to the lineup once or twice or two or three starts, major league hitters with the coaching and the videotape and all that, they, they learn a pitcher's habits, and then the advantage swings back to the hitter. And then it's up you know, to each player to make the adjustment as time goes on. But I think the Indians were smart to pitch a guy that, is, that the opposition had not seen before. And Toronto had a heck of a time figuring out his breaking ball. And now if, if they were to face him again, you know, or two or three more times, uh, the, the outcome may not be the same. But yeah. uh, I think advantage Cleveland with, with a new pitcher like that. Well, I mean, Terry Francona went into that game, Mark, wanting four innings out of merit. He got four and a third. And the big thing, you know, I thought at the time, that they took Merritt out too early because he was dominating them, Mark. He had given up one hit, and he erased that on a double play to Encarnacion. I thought the key to the pitching game for Merritt was in the third inning when he had given up a base hit. Encarnacion came to the plate with one out in the third inning, and he got down in the count 3-0, and and he threw three straight breaking pitches over the outside corner, two for strikes, and the final one got Encarnacion to pull into a 6-4-3 double play, and the Indians were out of the inning. And I thought for all intents and purposes, right there, the game was over. You know, that, that's that's a good point, and obviously Merritt had to make, he had to make the pitch. But I, I admire the catcher, or whomever called that those pitches, to do that. They, they they gave him the confidence to come in there with a breaking ball. They didn't want him to give up a three-run home run, which I'm sure Encarnacion was sitting on a fastball at least on the first two pitches. And then to, to have the kid execute like that, that that's just great pitching savvy and moxie. And, and maybe it was the catcher, maybe it was the bench, I don't know. But you're right, that was a key point in that game. Well, we're going to get into position-by-position breakdowns of both teams. We're going to talk about the managers in this series. We're going to talk about the schedule, the umpires. We've got all that coming up on this World Series edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. We're also, we're not going to forget about the Reds tonight either. We're going to go back later on in the show and we're going to talk about the 1972 World Series and the, um, the National League playoffs. We're going to talk about the 75 series. We're going to do all that coming up a little bit later on. But, Mark, this series right now between the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians has got to be the darling of Major League Baseball because you've got two teams here that have not won the World Series for a combined. This is a combined year 
184 years that these two teams have combined not winning the World Series. The Cubs' last World Series win was in 1908 against the Detroit Tigers. They won it four games to one. And the Indians haven't won it since 1948 when they won in six six games over. Do you know who they beat? In 48. Um... The, the Boston Braves. Boston Braves. Oh my gosh, the Boston Braves. The well, Boston since Braves. You, since you brought up the 1948 Cleveland Indians, I, I did some <laughs> research on that, and let me give you some names and see if you remember any of these names. Gene Bearden. Yes, left-handed Bla- pitcher. Don Black. No. R- Russ Christopher. No. Bob Feller. Yes. Obviously. Mike, Gar- Mike Garcia. Mike Garcia was a pitcher. Al Gettle. No. Steve Grummick. Yes. Very good. Ernest Roth. No. Roth. Uh, Bill Kennedy. Yes, I had heard of him. Ed Kleeman. No. Bob Lemon. Yes. Lyman Lindy. Yes. Bob Muncrief. Yes. And here's one for the ages. Satchel Page. Satchel Page. Did Left you notice Weber. there on that? I don't know if you've got the entire roster there, Mark, but that leads, leads us into another thing. Okay, a man named Robinson, Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson. He is the last living member of that team. No kidding. And is there's right? quite a controversy. Yeah, he's still alive. There's quite a controversy going on around Cleveland right now because the Indians have not invited him to the World Series at all. They haven't been in contact with him. Period. Well, you know why? He's he's 101. He's 100, yeah. <laughs> but you know what, Mark? i got to say this. Seriously, and I blame Bobby DiBiasio, who's the VP of marketing and, and communications for the Indians. This is the one bad thing I'm going to say about the Indians right here and now, and then the rest of the show I'm going to heap praise on them. Had Bob Feller still been alive, they'd have propped him up on the mound and had him throw out the first pitch. What's wrong with having Robinson come out there in a wheelchair and do the same thing? Well, you don't know how, you know, at 101 years old, if he's if he's bedridden or if there's a... Well, they've talked to him, and he's upset about the Indians because they haven't gotten in touch with him. Is that right? Well, good for him, then. Here's here's interesting facts about that team. Yeah. Uh, You know, they played in Municipal Stadium, and you know what their attendance was that year? I think it was somewhere around two million, wasn't it? Two point six million. That's yeah. that's a lot of people in nineteen forty eight, and they had a six twenty six winning percentage. Uh, that's strong. I mean, that that team was a, a really great team, and you're you're talking about Eddie Robinson. He actually started for that team. He was a starting first baseman, and uh, their their lineup was Jim Hegan was the catcher, Eddie Robinson first base, Joe Gordon. At second base, Ken Keltner, and Keltner is the guy who stopped Joe DiMaggio's uh, hitting streak with two great plays at third base. Lou Boudreaux was their shortstop. Dale Mitchell was their left fielder. And just as an aside, I played with Dale Mitchell's son in Philadelphia when I lived there. Uh, they had Lo- uh, Larry Doby uh, in yep. center field and Bob Kennedy in, in right field. And they actually had Doby played right and center, but of course he was the first uh, African American player to play for the Indians. 
and they're, they're starting pitchers, and they only list three starting pitchers, Gene Bearden, Bob Feller, and Bob Lemon. I don't know why they don't have more. I guess they, their, their bullpen was – and they only had two, four, five – they only had eight pitchers on their, on their staff. Mm-hmm. Steve Gromick, Ed Kleiman, Bob Moncrief, Satchel Page, and Russ Christopher, along with Bob Lemon, Bob Feller, and Gene Reardon. Now, how can you win a World Series? <laughs> oh, I, this is probably their uh, – no, this is most games played by position. That's what it was. Yeah, so they, that's, they had that's other starting, right. Other starting pitchers, but they didn't have a very deep – I know Mike Garcia was, was, a, was a good pitcher for them. Barry was a rookie that year. So it's interesting that you look at the comparison between 1948 and 1960 or 2016. Uh, the only thing that really surprised me out of all these things was the number of fans that turned out. Two points, two million six hundred twenty thousand fans showed up showed up at Municipal Stadium, which was a barn uh, to play in. Uh, but they got a lot of support. And, and the last interesting thing was. Name for me their highest paid player and what he made for the for the 1948 year. I'm going to say it was, um, I'm going to say it was Bob Lemon or Bob Feller. I'm sorry, Bob Feller, but he probably made only somewhere in the area of around forty thousand. Bob Feller made eighty two thousand five hundred. He was the Boy. number one player, and then it dropped down to Lou Boudreau at thirty five thousand dollars. Next was, was Johnny Bernardino. Manager. You know Johnny Bernardino. Johnny you know Bernardino. He, <laughs> you know who he turned in to be? Doctor Steve Hardy on General Hospital. Very good. You are you are the man. His salary was twenty thousand dollars. Bob Muncrief twelve five. Bob Lemon twelve thousand. This is for the year, folks. Don Black ten thousand. Russ Christopher ten. Hal Peck ten. Larry Doby five. And Ray Boone, forty-two hundred. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, and this you is meal. This is meal money for the players today. Normally, here's a couple more trivia items. You just mentioned Ray Boone. Mm-hmm. His son was Bob Boone. Brett Boone was was Bob's son. Mm-hmm. Remember? Sure. Okay. And, and then you Boone. mentioned and mentioned Boone. Mike Hegan, or or Jim Hegan. His son oh. was Mike Hegan. I'll be done. Who played for the Oakland A's and was a longtime Indians announcer. I'll be done. Yeah. But so the I mean, thing you got, got me that 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 uh, I think he was what forty seven or forty eight years old. Satchel Page being on this team at the time. Yeah. And he and actually he had a very good year during the regular season that year. He he won like twelve games or something. And he was a rookie that year too. That's right. They brought him up after they brought up Doby. Yeah, he, he started yeah. pitching for the Cleveland Indians. He, uh, he was 42 uh, when he broke into the big leagues, July 9th, 1948, with the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. And he, he had a good year. He had a good year that year. Yeah, they were. and Lou Boudreau was the player manager. Another ironic thing was, Mark, that they had to make they had to play a playoff game to get into the World Series. They beat the Red Sox in the playoff game in which Gene Bearden, a rookie left-hander, Went to Fenway Park as a left-hander and won that playoff game. <laughs> Looking at the stats for that year, uh, Satchel Page came into 1948. He was 42 years old. He was six and one. Uh, had a 2.48 ERA. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. He pitched in the big leagues till he was 47 years old. 
And, you know, this guy, he would have been absolutely a, a superstar in the Hall of Fame had he had a chance to pitch when he was in his 20s. If I'm not, do you have the stats there in front of you? Uh, depending on who you're looking for. Bob, Bob Feller, if I remember right, he was 19 and 15 that year. He had pitched over, I think he completed 30 games that season and had an ERA of somewhere around 3.45. Let me see, 1948. Uh, Bob Feller. Yeah, I got it here. And I think he struck out over 300 batters that year, too, but he completed. I, I was amazed because it was somewhere in the area of 30 games that he completed that year. Now, what did you say his record was? I thought it was 19 and 15. It was what? 19 and 15. You're right. 19 and 15, a 356 ERA. This was not even you know, near his best year. Right. Uh, he pitched two shutouts, had 18 complete games. 18, okay. 18 complete games. and uh, What was Bearden's record? Bearden, I think, won over 20 games that year, and he was a rookie that year. Let me see. What and he was basically a one-hit wonder. My, my dad tells me stories about the 48 Indians because he remembers them. And he tells me that Bearden was like Mark Fidrich with the Tigers that year. He came in, and he was a hot shot, and the next year he couldn't get anybody out, and he was out of baseball within three years. Well, in, in 1948, uh, he was born in 1905, uh, 1920, in 1920. Yeah. So he was 28 years old when he came up. 1948. Um, yeah, sorry he about was. That. He, he was he was really something. Um, but yeah, I mean, he when you look at what he did in that year, 1948, to go into Boston as a left-hander and win. The playoff game in Fenway Park, back then that was unheard of. Left-handers didn't go into Fenway Park and win. Well, he was 20-7 and seven that year, okay. a, two, a 243 ERA, pitched 229 innings. That's a lot of innings. And that was his – he had come up actually pitched in one game for the Indians in 1947, but uh, 48 really – I don't know if he – one rookie of the year, but uh, he should have. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah. See the the Indians World Series appearances. There have only been five in their long time history: 1920, 1948, 54, which was the year of the Willie Mays catch in Old Polo Grounds, 95, 97, and now this year is the sixth appearance. But Mark, let's shift gears and talk about the Cubs because everybody talks about the last time that they won the World Series was in 1908. That was not their last appearance in the World Series. And the funny thing about it is, Mark, back between 1900, actually let's just say 1906 to 1918, the Cubs were a dominant team in the National League. They went to the World Series five times in 17 years, they went in 1906, lost to the White Sox four games to two. They won the World Series two years in a row in 1907 and 1908. They beat the Tigers four games to none in 1907 and four games to one in 1908. In 1910, they went to the World Series and lost to the old Philadelphia A's. In 1918, they went to the World Series and lost to the Red Sox and Babe Ruth, by the way. Four games to one. Then they won again in 1929, 1932, 1935, 38, 
1945 was the last time that they went to a World Series and they lost to the Tigers in seven games, four games to three. So, you know, in the early part of the 1900s, Mark, the Cubs were a dominant team. And that's what you would expect from a big market team. Uh, the Indians at the time, they probably outdrew everybody, including the Cubs. But in 1940, in the 1940s, the Cubs were a good ball club. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, the, the Cubs at various times over their hiatus from the World Series, they put together good teams. Uh, it's, you know, think you, you had a lineup at one time in, in the 60s and 70s where you had Ernie Banks, Ron Sano, Billy Williams, all in that, that those are all Hall of Famers on the same team at the same time. Yeah. And they couldn't they, they couldn't pull it together. Of course, 1969, the, maybe the, the most famous collapse of all time for a team. Uh, that had a huge lead going into September and blew it. Uh, but the Cubs haven't always been awful. What they decided to do is in the in 2000, starting in 2008, 2009, 2010, they knew they were going to be bad, and they decided let's be awful. Let's let's blow this thing up and start over. Let's get some high draft picks, and that's exactly what they did. They made some shrewd trades, uh, but they they drafted really really well. And when you do that, the result is where the Cubs are today. And, you know, without question, the Indians are in a good spot because every major publication that I've seen, and there could be some local exceptions, they are picking the Cubs to win this thing. And that puts a lot of pressure on the Cubs because if they don't win it, it's going to be a disappointing year. The Indians, on the other hand, you know, I think they were expected to certainly compete in the American League, and you and I both said they would. But for them to go into the World Series as really serious underdogs, uh, I think it makes them looser, uh, puts a chip on their shoulder, and I, I think they're, they're going to. I think they're going to do well. I mean, I think the Indians are going to be. You know, that that first game with Kluber out there is so important. If they can, they can get that game. That's the game they have to win. They have to win the first game to really have a shot. Because if, if Kluber loses, it's going to put a huge amount of pressure on the rest of the staff and, and the team as a whole uh, to hang in there against the Cubs. So uh, I think tomorrow night for Indians fans is the ones that they have to light candles for. Yeah, and, and the thing is, Mark, is that from what I understand, uh, Joe Madden has decided that he's going to go with uh, John Lester in Game 1 and Arietta in game two, and then he's going to pitch Hendricks and Lackey in three and four. Now, he's reserved the right to switch that somewhat, and I'm not sure if he'll go with Lester tomorrow night or whether he'll flip-flop that and go with Arietta. Um, but Arietta's been, been hit. He and has been. The, the, and he, even he's won a lot of games, but he's been hit. His, his his stats aren't nearly as good as they were last year. I mean, he was MVP or Cy Young winner, so of course it's going to be probably a come down year for him. But um, I don't th- I don't think we- Lester has been really really solid for that team, and I, I expect Madden to go with him. Well, and Terry Francona he talked about his rotation. You already brought up the fact that he's going to go with Kluber in Game One, but then there was some talk about. What is he going to do in Game 2? And he talked about that earlier today, about what his rotation would be. Kluber's going to start Game 1. Bauer and Tomlin will be Games 2 and 3. We're going to hold off 
um, as long as we can with Trevor just to, you know, just to get the most information we can. If it works out right, we'd like him to pitch second. It's going to be TBA after game three probably the rest of the way. I mean, for, for obvious reasons, it doesn't, it's not that difficult to figure out. You know, Kluber's certainly an option. It could be a lot of things. So we're just kind of keeping it open. I mean, we found out the last series that that's probably a good way to do it. Well, it all depends, Mark. You know, I mean, it's a contingency factor with everything right now as far as the Indians pitching is concerned, even as far as games two and three. Because if Bauer, who was supposed to pitch a sideline bullpen session yesterday, and they were going to suture up his finger a little bit more, they said it's it's feeling good, it's healing well. But, I mean, you know, you brought it up last week on last Monday night show. That when you constantly throw your hand at the plate, that blood is rushing through your arm, into your hand, and it's going to put a lot of pressure on that cut. And to expect that thing to be fully healed in another 10 days, that might be expecting an awful lot. But they only need five innings out of this guy the way the bullpen is pitched. Well, whether it's five innings or or nine innings, it doesn't really matter. The, The first inning, he could blow that hand out again. You just don't know. And I would hold him off until the third game, just give him an extra 24 hours. Actually, it could be, what, 40? The first two games are... Tuesday, two games. Wednesday. Yeah, okay. Yes, he would get uh, he would get it two extra days if they hold him off until the third game. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're they're smart. They're not going to make a, a decision that uh, would, would put him at risk or put the team at risk. Uh, they know what they're doing. And I, I think that's what you have to rely on with... You know, you, you've got, in my opinion, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking at who's out there now, and, and a lot of the managers, I don't even know where where they are at this point, but you've got arguably not only the two best teams playing, but you've got two best managers going after each other, which makes every move an exciting move because these guys are smart, they're experienced, they've won in the past, they know what they're doing, they've, they've got their teams honed to a fever pitch, and I think this could be one of the more exciting World Series in the last, I don't know, 20 years. I can't think of one that, uh, and it's not just because the Indians are in it that I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually going to watch this World Series. This is going to be high drama you know, on the baseball yeah. diamond. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, and uh, there's a wild card here. In the playoff game against Toronto, the series against Toronto, the wild card was Ryan Merritt. The wild card here in this World Series for the Indians, in my opinion, is Danny Salazar. First of all, can he pitch? And if he does pitch, how are they going to use him? And Francona talked about that earlier today, too. I think the good news is is if Danny pitches and he pitches healthy and he's throwing the ball over the plate, we have a really good pitcher for however amount of innings he's built up for, which can potentially help us. Mark, here's the question. Do you bring this guy out of the bullpen if he's fully healthy and can pitch, or even if he's even if he's able to pitch, do you bring him out of the bullpen, or do you go ahead and try to start him in game four? If I was Francona, I would not bring him into any kind of pressure situation. I would bring him in out of the bullpen if, you're, if you've got a big lead or you're way behind. He has not had any innings to build up his arm strength. And of course, there's no minor leagues to do a rehab stint in, so he's he's coming off the practice mound into the World Series, and I would be measured in how I used him, 
And again, you don't want to be way behind just so you can test Salazar. But if you're way ahead, if you've got a six, seven, eight run lead, I bring him in for inning, see how he can do, if he can get the ball over the plate. And then you know you've got something in the rest of the series. The same if you're way behind, you know, bring him in, let him throw a few innings. But I, it would be foolhardy to bring him into a, a clutch situation. Uh, been that, that, that many weeks away from actual game action. But, but Francona is certainly smart enough to figure that out. Yeah, and of course they don't have to have the World Series rosters in until noon tomorrow. So that will be interesting to see what the Indians do because if they do keep Salazar, Mark, who do they take off? And, you know, the way, especially with the DH not being in effect, and not a lot of people are talking about this part, Mark. The DH is a very, very important factor for the Indians because their two biggest hitters this year, as far as the home run ball, have been Carlos Santana and Mike Napoli. Carlos Santana this year, looking at his stats, either at DH or at first base, he has hit 34 home runs, driven in 87, and in the leadoff spot, he's drawn just shy of 100 walks, 99 this year. And then you've got Mike Napoli, who has been switching between first base and DH, 34 home runs also, and he's got 101 RBIs. So Francona's got some big decisions to look at as far as what does he do with both of those players when the team goes to Chicago. Yes, but when they go to Cleveland, the Cubs are going to add Kyle Schwarber, I understand, to their as their DH, which is a shock. I don't think they're going to do it. I don't well, think they're going to do that. This morning on ESPN they were talking about that, and they said he's been raking the ball in batting practice and you know in, in simulated games, and they think he can go as a DH. But the, the Cubs... They have a lot of power off that bench too, so that I think that's going to be a, a kind of a neutral thing. That each lineup is going to be substantially stronger because of the DH. I don't think it, it advantages one team over the other. Well, you know, I, I yeah, the thing about it is, I even thought about you know they could put conceivably. I don't think they're going to do it. Nobody's even asking the question. They could put Santana at third base to start the game and move Ramirez back out to left field. Now that Are considerably you lessens your defense. I was going to say that I, Santana at third base in the World Series, not having played there regularly this year, that would be a scary proposition. I don't think Frank Kona would even consider that. Would that be even scarier than Tony Perez playing third? Well, Tony Perez only played third for, <laughs> for one and a half years. You know, one and a half years. They moved him to first. And, and right. he did not debut in the World Series. Right. You know, I, we're going to look at the teams position by position, but right now, let's let's move up the segment just a little bit, Mark, and, and that way we can talk about the Reds as we're halfway through tonight's show. Do you know what happened back on October twenty second, 1975? Say, October twenty second, 1975. Yes. That was after the World Series. No, it was. Uh, all right. The Reds beat the Boston Red Sox in Game 7 of the 75 okay. World Series, 4-3. to three, And they scored the winning run in the ninth inning on this hit. There's a looper. They drop. It's in for a hit. 
Here comes the throw to third. Rose hits the dirt. He's safe. And there goes Morgan down to second. And the Reds have the lead four to three. As Joe Morgan blooped a base hit into center field. Scoring Griffey from third. The throw from Lynn to third was too late. Rose hitting the dirt there. And on the throw to third, going down to second, is Joe Morgan. Of course, Kurt Gowdy with the play-by-play on NBC of that base hit by Joe Morgan, which scored the winning run. Mark, debates never stop, even back in 1975, because I remember a lot of fans around baseball, especially emanating from Cincinnati back then, were extremely upset over the way that Kurt Gowdy called that series because they thought he was in the Red Sox's pocket for that entire series. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I didn't know you were going to say that, but I, I was of that camp too. And in hearing it now after all these years, I mean, that was an exciting moment in the World Series. And and Kurt Gowdy, of course, had been a Boston Red Sox announcer for years, and you could tell the disappointment in his in his voice. And he, I think you're right. I mean, he, he was a homer for Boston. I mean, you can't blame the guy. I mean, you you were with the team 162 games a year, and you live and die with them. And then uh, to see them have a three nothing lead in the seventh game of the World Series, and the Reds come back and, and steal it from them, and that base hit changed the Reds from being, frankly, a disappointing team through the 60s and you know through the 70s, basically. To a to a, a dominant team because it gave them their first World Series win and then they built on that the next year. Had that team only won one World Series, say in '76, that people would have said they had underperformed. Not unlike the Indians, when they were at their heyday in the mid '90s, True. they they just could not win that big game to get them a couple World Series wins. And had the Indians done that, and they certainly had the talent to do it. They, we'd be talking about them being a super team in the 90s. So that base hit by Joe Morgan, and I remember it very well, and Pete flying into third base, Yes, uh, that, that changed the, the, the entire trajectory of the Cincinnati Reds as one of the great teams in baseball. Mark, had they not won that series in 75, do you think they win in 76? I do. I mean, I, I think they were so good. They were, they were really a good team. In seven, from 70 to 79, that team really was the best team in baseball. But that doesn't matter. You, you can say that, but you have to prove it on the field. And by winning two World Series championships back-to-back, uh, has that been done in the National League since? I don't, I don't know that it has. Uh, they, they engraved themselves with all – they won more games than any other team in the 70s. Uh, they won more divisions, they won more pennants, they won more World Series. And so as a result, they are deemed, along with the 1927 Yankees, as maybe one or two of the best th- teams in baseball history. But you don't win that game in 1975, it has a different connotation. It's a team that underperformed, just like the Indians in the 90s. And that series, Mark, is the series that everybody goes back to and compares their series with that 1975 World Series, especially Game 6. Game 6 may have been the best game ever in World Series history. Well, I'll take umbrage with that a little bit. I think the the better World Series uh, was 1972, uh, the Reds and the Oakland Athletics. And the Athletics were on their way to three straight World Series championships. And 
each game, all seven games, were divided by, uh, decided by one run. And that was the most tense, nail-biting World Series I've ever encountered. It doesn't get a lot of play, but you had two great teams going at each other in 1972, the Oakland A's and the Cincinnati Reds. And you look at the rosters in those teams. I mean, there was a lot of Hall of Famers on those two teams. And, that, that you know, every game, one run. And the Reds could have easily, I mean, if the Reds won that World Series and they missed it by a game, they missed it by a run or two, uh, they clearly would have been maybe the greatest team of all time. Well, all right. Now, two things stick out in my mind about that 72 World Series. And one of them is not the catch that Joe Rudy made in Game 1. The first one was, and a lot of people don't remember this, Reggie Jackson did not play in that series for the A's because he had ripped his hamstring in the playoff series against Detroit previous. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was, Game 5, that the Reds had to win in order to send the series back to Cincinnati. They're down three games to one, and Oakland, with the Tying run at third base, what does Dick Williams do? He sticks his pitcher, Blue Moon Odom, to pinch run at third base. He's the tying run, and there's a little blooper down the right field line that Joe Morgan goes back, catches with his back to the infield, turns, Blue Moon Odom decides to come home, Morgan turns, stumbles, falls down to his knees, gets back up and throws a strike to Johnny Bench at the plate, and Blue Moon Autumn was caught by a hair, and that ended the ball game, and the Reds take it back to Cincinnati down three games to two. Yep, I remember that very well, and uh, that, that's why I thought that series was so, I mean, so many great plays in that series, and, uh, you know, e- each one was had a huge impact on the outcome of the game, and, of course, in a seven-game series, and all decided by one run, each play took on such a momentous uh, it had a momentous impact on on the outcome of the game, so that to me was a uh, as exciting a World Series as 1975. But in in some cases, it was a lot closer than 1975. I'll give you that, but you know the series that I thought was unbelievably played between two outstanding ball clubs was previous to that when the Reds played the Pirates in the best of five in that National League Championship Series. Uh, that was the one that we've always talked about, Mark. <laughs> we Every time we talk about announcers, we bring up how Al Michaels was the announcer for the Reds that year, and we talk about that that call that he made on Johnny Bench. Well, let's go back to 1972 and let's listen. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. The Reds were down 2-1. to one going into the bottom of the ninth inning, and Bench is leading off the inning, and it's a one-and-two count. One-and-two. The line. And a pinch to Bench. Change hit in the air to deep right field. That goes to Bench. It's a pass. He's done. A stretch. And the one-one pitch to McRae. In the dirt. It's a wall. Mark, you know, that is from the the record. Now, on YouTube, you can find the entire Game 5 
the Reds broadcast of Game 5. It's not very good quality. I'll tell you that right now. I've, I found it yesterday. Um, but you you can listen to it with Nux Hall and Al Michaels doing the radio broadcast, commercials and all. But, you know, the other thing is is that about halfway through that ninth inning, when the Reds decide to go ahead and pinch hit McCray, Michaels is still talking about how they're going back in their scorebook. Johnny Bench had not hit a home run to right field the entire year. That's right, and it was a changeup. And you remember who the pitcher was? Dave Justy. That's right. And Dave Justy had a great changeup. And after that series, they asked Johnny Bench, uh, they brought up the, the fact, you know, was he, what pitch was he sitting on? He said, I was sitting on the change rather than sitting on the fastball. And he, he knew the change was going to be thrown eventually. And uh, that was just a great bit of hitting. And, you know, it's interesting. They say Clemente backing up against the wall. What happened after this World Series? He died. That's right. He got in a plane crash on New Year's Eve. That was his last yeah, that game. That was his last game. Yep, the last game by one of the greater players, greatest players of all time. But, you know, you hear those names out there, and you're right. The, those two teams were two great teams in, in 1972. You know, Matlock and uh, um, Clemente and Stargell and uh, Bob Robertson. And Bob Roberts. They, 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 Robinson, he, he was a great pitcher. And the Cubs, the Pirates and the Reds at that time were the two best teams in baseball, along with the Dodgers, I think. Uh, the Dodgers just, they had the unfortunate, uh, misfortune of being a really good team when the Reds were really a great team at the same, in the back of the 70s. But the, the, you know, the Pirates, the Reds really had their number, uh, in the playoffs. And, uh, they beat them 1970, beat them in 72. Of course, the Pirates came back and, and beat them in 79 to go to the World Series. But uh, great baseball teams make great baseball games. And that's what I think we have now with the Indians and the Cubs. I, again, I'm looking forward to it. Mark, all right, let's get back into our World Series. I want to ask you this question. In 95, you, you brought that up earlier about how the Indians weren't able to close the deal in 95 and 97. In 95, they won 100 out of 144 games, the Indians did. Not so much unlike what the Cubs did this year, only in 162 games. The reason they only played 144 was because the season started late because of the strike. But the Indians in 95, when they faced the Atlanta Braves and got beat four games to two, a lot of people felt, including years after the Indians even said it themselves, some of the players that... You know, they were just happy to make it to the World Series. This is an event for the Cubs. This is not unlike what the Indians did in 95, where they were the best team in baseball by far. First time they had been to the World Series since 1954. You know, almost half of the time of what it took the Cubs to make it. But it's not unlike what the Cubs are going through now. Do you think the Cubs could linger on and just be happy to be there, maybe not, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. Uh, no, I don't. No more than the Indians. Uh, I, I think the Indians, they were not the favorites that the Cubs were. I mean, the Cubs were favored to win this thing from spring training on. Uh, their roster was just outstanding. Is outstanding. Uh, no, I, I think both teams again. And I, the reason I don't believe that is the managers. 
Francona and Madden are not going to allow their players to have that kind of attitude. Uh, they're, they're in it to win it. And, you know, we both talked about the idea of Francona and Madden being Hall of Fame managers. Well, I think it, whoever wins it is a shoe-in for the Hall of Fame. If Madden wins it, he's in. If Francona wins it, he's in. And it doesn't escape these guys. This is important to these, these teams. It's wildly important to the organizations. Uh, this, this cements what the front offices have done with these two respective teams in terms of bringing them to where they are. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, that, I think it's kind of a cliche. If, if you're playing at this level, you want to win the damn thing. And I, I think that's why this is going to be so exciting because some one of these teams is going to break a, a, a long jinx. And, of course, I'd love the line by, I forget the writer now, for the Chicago Tribune talking about the Cubs, that any team can have a bad century. Well, <laughs> this, this, is, this is how you break that jinx. And I think the Cubs are going to be going, grinding every out. Well, how much of the – a factor do you think the weather may be because I'm looking at the weather forecast especially for Cleveland and of course Cleveland is right in line with Chicago so anything that Chicago gets Cleveland gets a couple hours later so I mean you're you're looking at two cities that are going to be exactly the same when it comes to the weather forecast and tomorrow night in Cleveland it's supposed to be somewhere in the middle 40s and of course you know we're in late October so it's you know especially with Chicago they're right there on on Lake Michigan. So what's it going to be like in, in Chicago and Cleveland? Do you think the weather is going to be a factor in this series? Well, I, I don't know this to be the case, but I've heard that whatever the, 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 the temperature is outside, it's about 10 to 12 degrees warmer on the field. Number one, because the field is sunk. I'm not talking about those two particular ballparks, but any, any place. The field is sunk. It's protected by the stadium and you have all these lights, and you have 50,000 people heating it up. So uh, I remember going to – I remember playing in games where uh, I never played in, in front of a crowd like that, but, you know, it's, say, 45 degrees outside, but you're playing in a big stadium, and it, it, it is warmer. And you have the adrenaline, and you're running, and you're throwing. It's not going to be a factor. I mean, if it got it down to the 20s, that's something different. Uh, the, the bigger factor is rain, or, or even snow for that matter. That does impact the play. But I don't think the temperature in and of itself, because if it's, it says 45 degrees outside the stadium, it's probably closer to 50 to 55 degrees inside the stadium. What kind of TV ratings do you think this series will get? You know, I was thinking about that, and I think it's going to be huge, mainly because you've got two Midwestern teams that, with the histories they have, even, but even if you live in L.A., there's some drama built into this thing. And even people in New York are going to look, hey, you know, those teams haven't won for a while. This ought to be pretty cool. And, again, you've got two great teams, two great managers, marquee players. Uh, I think everybody's going to watch this. And, and I would be surprised and disappointed if the, the ratings weren't through the roof on it. You know, Mark, what's sad is that it took – how many years, 54 years, for the city of Cleveland to win a championship? And the Cavaliers finally come through and do it. And 
I don't know if you realize this or not, but this will be the first ever game one the Indians have ever hosted. They have never hosted game one in the history of their franchise. In the previous five times they've been to the World Series, they've never hosted a game one. And the one time that they do it, the first time they do it, has to be on the night that the Cavaliers are opening up, hoisting up the championship banner, and giving out their rings. But to the Cavaliers' credit, they moved the ceremony up an hour and so that the people can come in, see the ceremony, and then leave in time to get right across the, the, the concourse and get into to progressive field for game one of the World Series. Well, all the suffering Cleveland fans have endured, and <laughs> after seeing the, the Browns yesterday on TV, oh. uh, they have, have more endurance there to, to withstand. But, uh, you know, this is what a great thing for the Cleveland name. Uh, two World Series cha- participants and maybe two World Champions. Now, I try to think, and I can't remember, but I try to think of the last city that had two simultaneous World Champions in the three major sports, and I can't think of one. Um, now, if you add hockey into that with uh, you know the, the, another major league team or NBA team or NFL team, I, I don't remember. But I'm sure it's happened. I just can't remember when it is. But it's it rarely happens. So the point is, Cleveland fans ought to be thrilled that they've got at least one world championship. And if it coincides with the World Series, tough. Uh, if that's your biggest problems in your sporting life, uh, endure it. Because a lot of other cities would like to have that problem. Right. And, Mark, I, I, I saw the... That question was asked um, the other night. Who was the last one to do it? And it was actually Boston. If I remember right, the answer to that question, if you include hockey, was Boston when the Red Sox won in 2013 and the Bruins won the Stanley Cup that year. Yeah, you know, I, I knew the Bruins had won it, and I wasn't sure they'd won it the same year the Red Sox did, but that was my guess. It was Boston. Uh, and I, the the other guess was um, when the when the um, New York Knicks won. I know they won in 1970, and the Mets won in '69. Uh, I didn't know if I know the Mets didn't win it the next year, but uh, you know, depending. And I'm always confused, <clears throat> like with the uh, when the seasons go over into yeah. they cross the the, the New Year's. Um, you know, how's that qualified? Because most of the football season is played in the previous year. It's like, like this year, it'll be 2016. The vast majority of the games are played in 2016, but the, but the Super Bowl will be in 2017. So I, I forget actually how they calculate. Do they say the Super Bowl winner this year is the, they're the 2017 champions or the 2016? Okay, okay. I wasn't sure how they did that, and if they do it the same way in every sport. Not really. No, they don't. <laughs> I think every sport is 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 different. Well, let's take a look at the umpires, and then Mark and I are going to go over our not only position by position, who we think has got the edge via position, but then we'll give our predictions on tonight's show. Mark, here's the umpires for the World Series. John Hirschbeck. This will be his first, his fifth 
I'm sorry, fifth World Series. And he's retiring after this year, by the way. Chris Guccione, this will be his first World Series. Sam Holbrook will umpire his second. Marvin Hudson, this will be his first World Series, along with Tony Randazzo, his first. Larry Vanover, his first World Series. And Cowboy Joe West will be umpiring his sixth World Series in this one. Thank heavens, Angel Hernandez is not a part of the World Series umpiring crew. I thought he was absolutely atrocious in that National League Series, Mark. He was terrible. It's, it amazes me that Major League Baseball tolerates some of these, some of these umpires because you and I could manage or, or, or umpire a Major League Baseball game and get 95% of the calls right. I mean, anybody could. Anybody knows yeah. anything about baseball. Uh, you know, a, a, a routine ground ball to shortstop, you can call it. I mean, you, no, nobody could miss that. So what you're looking for in your professional umpires at the major league level is they get the calls that you and I would have a hard time getting right. Bang, bang. And I think the, the most difficult call in baseball is the call at first base. It's the bang, bang. Is a foot on the bag or not uh, as, the catch, as the first baseman receives the ball? And the nuance to that rule is the ball supposedly has to be in the back of the first baseman's mitt. Not not where he touches the mitt, he has to have caught it. So those little things, the, the first base umpire, you go by sound. I, I've umpired at first base. You go by sound a lot, the, the slap of the bag and the ball in the mitt and all those things. But that's that's the toughest call. And what gets me is how often the major league umpires are wrong. It's about 50-50. And that's, that's, that's unbelievable. That's troublesome. Yeah, and I'm not saying they're bad guys. I'm saying the flaw is in the fact that we rely on, on human senses to pick this up in a fraction of a fraction of a second. And sometimes you just can't. That's why I've said it. I say it again. Uh, you're going to have at first base, that's going to be the first place they have automatic, they'll have the umpires call the game, but every play is reviewed. Because they get them right. They get them wrong so often. Right. Well, I'm of the opinion, and I told you this last week about Angel Hernandez, I'm of the opinion that every time he has a close call, he should just throw his hands up in the air and just say, I don't know. Let's just walk to the monitor and have every play reviewed. Because he had two calls, Mark, in that National League Championship Series. One was overturned at first base. The next night on on Adrian Gonzalez, he was obviously safe. He called him out for some reason whether or not it was just charity or they didn't want to make Hernandez look bad two nights in a row, they called Gonzalez out at the plate in that game, and the replay called him out. I just find Angel Hernandez to be the absolute worst umpire in baseball. But I am really worried, Mark, and I know I don't want to look over the entire umpiring crew, but, Mark, you've got three guys, actually four, I'm sorry, four, that are umpiring their first World Series. That's a little worrisome. I don't think the, the, the pressure of the World Series gets to these guys. They're, they're professionals. They, they, they've, 
umped big games before, so I, I don't think that's the issue. And when when you have a big game like this, it's like all of us, you get psyched up. So your your senses are, are highly tuned. So I think we're going to get good umpiring. And with the replay now that they have an effect, you know, it's it's going to be difficult for a bad call to impact the outcome of the game. The only exception to that is behind the plate. And then you have an umpire who gets a zone in his brain that is not the zone that the players are used to, and that can become a problem. But the players, it's their responsibility to adjust to that, even during a World Series. So I don't think the umpires are going to be a factor, but I would not have had that confidence you know, several years ago before replay. Did you see on uh, Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel a couple of weeks ago on HBO the segment that they did on the strike zone box? No, I did and, not. In the lowest level of the minor leagues, they tried this out for a couple of games where the developer of the software for the strike zone box was in a booth and he actually called the pitches from the booth into an earwig to the home plate umpire, and then the home plate umpire signaled whether or not it was strike or a ball. No, I had that turn out. Uh, they well, according to the home plate umpire, it was fantastic because he he didn't miss a call all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you can't argue about it either because it's not the umpire; it's it's technology, and technology is easier to adjust to than the, the vagaries of every umpire calling a different game. So I, I think that's cool. I think it's a great innovation. Uh, it, it eliminates the arguments, and it gets it right. That's that's the thing. It gets it right, and that's what you want. You want the game to be decided on the field, not by an umpire, and not that they're bad guys or they're purposely making bad calls. It's just the frailties of us as human beings to, to you know, make a call on a ball coming in at 102 miles an hour that has a dip on it, and you know, to get that call right is not always easy. Okay, obviously we're going to go over in time a little bit tonight on the show, but we want to get into position by position the matchups here between the Cubs and the Indians in the World Series and give our predictions. So, Mark, let's start out behind the plate here for the the series between the Cubs and the Indians. Well, I'll tell Roberto you what, Perez, why don't you take, you take the Indians and let me look at the Cubs. All right, that's fine. Um, all right, first of all, catcher. Roberto Perez will probably be the starting catcher for the Indians. Now, he has not had a very good season for the Indians. He's coming off of a thumb injury in which he missed most of the year. Jan Gomes will still be on the World Series roster. He could catch in a pinch. He could hit in a pinch. Uh, I think the, the strength of the catching position for the Indians is obviously defensively. I think both Gomes and Perez call a good game, they catch a good game, and they throw well. Uh, so, so when you have the look at the Cubs, you have Wilson Contreras, David Ross, and Montero. And David Ross is the guy who has been carrying this team at least emotionally all year. And I, I think he'll probably get the start tonight. Uh, but I would give the edge to the Cubs behind the plate. What's your thought? Uh, yeah, I would. I would give the. I think offensively by far because the Cub catchers have combined for over 30 home runs this year. The Indians have not come anywhere near that. 
although Perez seems to hit better in the clutch than he does any other time, and he throws the ball extremely well. But the catching on the Cubs, they're good defensively. I'm going to give you, I'm going to agree with you. I think the the nod goes to the Cubs also as far as the catching department. First yeah. base, you've got Anthony Rizzo. Yeah. <laughs> Against Napoli. Yeah, and that's, I mean, Napoli, I, I think, and you have to admit, that that was a guy you were not fond of when, when the Indians signed him at the beginning of the year. But do you think the Indians are in the World Series without Napoli? No. I don't either. No. No, I mean, he, brought, he brought a toughness to this team, Mark, and a togetherness. And that's hard to do. Do you know how hard it is to come into a team and not only bring toughness and togetherness? That's not done very often. Yeah, I think that they uh, – I'm going to go with Rizzo only because I think he is going to hit for a higher average, and I think he's probably a better defensive player. Uh, I don't know how you look at it. You've seen Napoli more than I have. But, um, you know, I, I think at first base Rizzo is, is a rising star, and he and Joey Votto are the two best first basemen in baseball. I would agree with that, even though I think Napoli has – has meant more to the Indians than Rizzo has to the Cubs, in all honesty. I would say that Rizzo gets the nod at first base also. At second base, you've got Jason Kipnis. Kipnis grew up being in Chicago, near the, near, not Wrigley Field, but Comiskey Park, old Comiskey Park, a White Sox fan. The ironic thing is, Mark, is that he seems to play his best baseball in Chicago, whenever the Indians play the White Sox, he's a White Sox killer. Can that be transformed over to Wrigley Field? Everybody's hoping so. I think Jason Kipnis has had an outstanding year. He's settled in to that second spot in the batting order. And he's played well defensively the last two months of the season. Second base for the Cubs? Uh, my computer just went down, David, so I'm trying to, to recapture Hob- all the... Javi Baez or Ben Zobrist Yeah, they normally I, play in second. Again, I've I got to give the, the edge to the Cubs. <clears throat> More speed. I think it's better defense. Uh, Kipnis is, is a good offensive player. Um, by the way, how's his ankle? It's good. Okay, yeah, so that should be an issue. Be a issue. But if I were to pick... <clears throat> I mean, Baez has just been spectacular... Uh, and he brings speed, and, and he's hitting well. Uh, I think Kipnis is a is a is a good player. I don't think he's of the ilk of those two. See, I think Jason Kipnis is a better second baseman than what Baez showed in the National League Championship Series. Do I think Baez is an excellent defensive second baseman? Yes, he's got excellent range, but he did not show it in the National League Championship Series. He bungled up a couple of plays in games. Uh, four and five for the Cubs, and I was not not pleased with the way that he played. Zobrist, I think, is just an average second baseman. I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you on this one. I'm gonna give the nod right now, as of this season, to Jason Kipnis at second base for the Indians. Shortstop. I know you know where I'm going with this one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Francisco Lindor has been more than advertised that he was supposed to be as far as the Indians are concerned. He came in, Mark, that middle of part of last year, and he put an enthusiasm of playing baseball into this team 
that this team did not have. He has fun out there. He makes outstanding plays at shortstop. And he has come up with probably two of the biggest hits that the Indians have had during this postseason. Before you even get into it with Addison Russell, I'm taking Lindor hands down. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I disagree with you at second base, but I think Addison Russell and, and Lindor are going to be the, the names everybody talks about at shortstop over the next decade. I mean, these guys have unbelievable physical skills. They both play with enthusiasm. Uh, Addison Russell is, I think, a year, year and a half behind Lindor in terms of some of the things he does. He, he's a little erratic on his throws. I, I know when the Reds played the Cubs this year, I saw him 17 times. Um, he, he'll throw the ball away. Uh, so I, I would give the edge. Uh, so far, this is the only edge I would give to the Indians is at, at shortstop right now. Third base, Jose Ramirez and Chris Bryant. I, I feel the same way about this position, Mark, that I do about first base. I'm going to give the nod before you even get into Chris Bryant to Chris Bryant. But I think Jose Ramirez has meant more to the Indians this year at third base than Chris Bryant did to the Cubs. Well, yeah, Bryant be... had the better year. Yes, but, but that logic is based on the fact that the Cubs are a better team. I, I think the Cubs are a better baseball team than the Indians, which means – they have more talent up and down the line, so one player isn't going to have the impact that it may have on the Indians. Now, you're talking about a, a player that is more valuable to their organization or to their team. I, I, I tend to agree with you. But Chris Bryant, uh, his impact on that lineup is, is just amazing. I mean, he, he he's the guy you got to stay away from. And you, and because of that, you work your pitching staff around him more uh, than you have anybody, frankly, on, on the Indian staff. There's nobody offensively that has the the fear factor that Chris Bryant has. So, uh, I mean, this this is a guy twice this year hit three home runs and two doubles in a game. I mean, that's the kind of potential this guy has. So, you his impact on the lineup day to day, I think, is more impactful for the Cubs than, than any player that the Indians have. Except that the Indians, I think, play better as a team than the Cubs do. How can you say that? They won, the Cubs won more games than anybody else in baseball. Because I think the Indians do more to win baseball games than the Cubs do. I think the Cubs, the Cubs are like the 95 Indians. That's where I'm coming from on this. The Cubs are like the 95 Indians in the fact that they will slug you to death. They will bludgeon you to death. Okay? The Indians are more adept at doing the little things to win games than the Cubs. And the the 95 Indians found out against the better pitching Atlanta Braves that if you can't hit the three-run home run, you've got to be able to do the little things, and they weren't able to do it. And that's what I'm wondering about the Cubs here, Mark. Are they able to do the little things that the Indians are able to do? Well, we'll find out. I mean, that's not a bad uh, a bad point. Uh, but it always comes down. It's always going to come down to the pitching, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But right. uh, you know, the I think on a and we'll get let's get to the outfield. But uh, you know, at third base, I think Chris Bryant is clearly. Oh, let me put it this way: going well, I don't into, disagree with you. Going into 2017 season, who would you rather have, your guy or, oh, or Chris Bryant? Chris Bryant. Okay. By by far. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with you. I'm giving the nod to Chris Bryant. 
What I'm saying is I think that Jose Ramirez meant more to the Indians this year in what he brought to their team than Chris Bryant did to the Cubs. And if he played for the Cubs, he wouldn't because he's not nearly the best player. Probably so, not. No, I agree with you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no no doubt. Outfield, left field, you've got Coco Crisp and Rajay Davis against either Ben Zobrist or Jorge Soler. Yeah, and gosh, I'd like to have all four of those guys. You know, <laughs> they're, they're all good. So I the Indians you, came close to getting Soler in the off season. Remember? I know they did. I know they did. Uh, he's a guy who has not. He still strikes that way too much. Uh, you know, the guy who's been really disappointing for, for the Cubs this year, maybe the biggest disappointment is Jason Hayward. Hayward, he has yes. just not hit. He's hit two thirty. Uh, he, he doesn't get on base. He's a great defensive uh, outfielder, but wow. I mean, they signed this guy to, what, a seven-year deal? And I just wonder, Mark, if him being hit in the face by that pitch last year hindered him this year. You know, you never know what's in, inside a guy's head. Uh, anytime you're hit like that, it has an impact. But, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at the at the outfield for the Cubs, uh, th- there's some disappointing numbers there. That is really remarkable for a team that won 103 games. I mean, when Dexter Fowler is your best guy, uh, there's not a lot of power out there. Uh, and, again, a lot of it because of Hayward. He's not performed this year, and Solaire is inconsistent. So if we look at the three outfielders, Dexter Fowler, Jason Hayward, and Solaire, I think the edge goes to Cleveland on, in the outfield in general. Could you, and, and don't forget Ben Zobris plays in, in the outfield too. So you got to throw him to, into the mix. Yeah, so you know, a lot of players play different positions on the Cubs. <laughs> That's they may not, you know, even Chris Bryant has played left field and, and and several games in left field. But overall, I would give the edge on the outfield um, as a group to to the Indians. Now that's interesting because I was going to give it to the Cubs. Okay, I still was. Um, I, you know, it all depends. The Indians can play so many different combinations in the outfield markets. It's hard to really compare outfield play with outfield play because both these managers interchange their outfields That's true. in so many different ways. That's true. Um, you know, but I was still going to give the Cubs the benefit of the doubt in the outfield. As far as the bench is concerned, that's really hard to even take into consideration also because the Indians, yeah, their bench is their bench, but their bench is also interspersed throughout the starting lineup depending upon the day and who's pitching. And it's hard for me to get a feel as to who I would say is a bench player for the Indians when Coco Crisp is going to play left field one day, Rajay Davis is going to play, and, and, and Terry Francona makes so many moves and maneuvers during a game anyway. You know, I'm... I, I hate to even say I'm going to give the Cubs the benefit of the doubt on the bench there because the Indians bench is really their starting lineup. Yeah, and again, I think you're right. It's kind of a wash between the benches. They're, they're both good. But uh, let's dive into the pitching staff by the time we have left because that's that's really what's going to separate these two teams. And that's what makes this so darned exciting because uh, if, you were to com- if you were to take a draft, you and I draft off the rosters, the pitching staff, to come up with the the ultimate pitching staff, uh, say a 12-man pitching staff from these two teams, I mean, we could have a team that could win 130 games. (laughs) I think, Mark, if you opened it up to a draft 
and you included Carrasco and Salazar in this starting rotation with the Indians, which I didn't going into the World Series, the Indians and the Cubs would be out of pitching before any other team. Uh, the Indians would be out of pitching. Okay, I get your point. Um, but don't forget these names. Arietta, Chapman, Hendricks, Lackey, right. Lester, Rondon, Stroop. I mean, if those guys don't make your roster, think how great your roster is. That's my point. That I mean, these two teams combined to have, you know, arguably – I don't know what other two teams would have better combined pitching than these two. It's it's really remarkable how deep the Indians are, how deep the Cubs are. Uh, these guys these guys have a bullpen, you know, throwing 103, and you got Miller throwing 97. His slider's coming in at 92. I mean, you have some unhittable pitching in in the series. That's going to be really exciting. The way I looked at it, Mark, was starting pitching right now goes to the Cubs. The bullpen goes to the Indians. Even though the Cubs have Chapman, I think the bullpen still goes because the Indians' bullpen is deeper than the Cubs. Um, I, could, I could buy into that argument. Uh, the other thing that you get caught up in is, are you measuring a pitching staff for 162 games or for seven games? And that's a big difference. So going into a, a seven-game series, I think the impact of Chapman and Miller uh, have a huge impact on, on what, what staff you'd pick because both of them are basically unhittable. If those guys are on their game, uh, you, you've just won two of the innings. Now, it's going to be really cool if you have Miller going against Chapman the last two innings of a game. That is going to be great. Can you imagine a seventh game? A seventh game, it's tied 4-4, four to four, and the Indians bring in Miller, and the Cubs bring in Chapman. One of those great guys is probably going to screw up. <laughs> or, or maybe not. Maybe they'll get through and you pay, play 15 innings into the seventh game. But uh, they're, so, they're so aligned in their talent levels. The two best relievers in baseball, at, you cannot argue it, the two best relievers are Chapman and Miller, and they're facing each other. The top – the top three pitchers on each team, I think, are almost interchangeable. They're all very, very good. And maybe you could go even down to number four. Where the Indians might have an advantage is going to be over a longer series, like, the, like an entire year. I think they have more depth, more quality depth. And, and I think they're, they're, they set better, better pitching. <clears throat> but in a short series, this is why this is so remarkable, this, this matchup. I'm going to say something. I'm going to, uh, uh, and I may fumble it a little bit here, but I'm going to I'm going to try to explain this. I think the Indians have an advantage facing Chapman more than the Cubs have facing the Indians' entire bullpen. And the reason I say that is the Cubs did not face the Indians or the Yankees this year when Miller was on the Yankees. So they have not seen Miller, they have not seen Allen, and they have not seen Shaw this year. Whereas the Indians faced Chapman this year and were somewhat successful against him. So I think the Indian hitters 
have a better, a more advantage against Chapman than the Cub hitters do against the Indians, three guys in the bullpen. Well, don't forget that the, the Indians obviously faced Miller when he was with Baltimore. Uh, so they're, they're, they're used to Andrew Miller. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the Cubs. The Cubs face Miller. Um, well, he wasn't with Baltimore. He, who was he, he was with, with before? He was with the Yankees, and they didn't face him this year. Oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah. Well, I, I could buy into that, although with the videotape and seeing this guy pitch so much, it's going to be execution, Dave. It's, it's going to be which one of Chapman and Miller uh, can stand up to the pressure that, that they're going to face. And, and uh, you, you know, neither one of them has been in this kind of environment. Uh, and it's, can you imagine being the reliever going into, let's say your, your role as Chapman, and you've got a 4-3 to three lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning. All the pressure that's on that guy, that's, that's, that's almost unbearable pressure. You're, you're going up against 108 years, and if you, if you lose that game, if you blow that lead, you're going, to re, you're going to be Bartman forever. You're the guy who blew it, and, and he will not be back. You know, Chapman's going to be a free agent, and he's going to be gone. So he's got a chance for immortality, or he's got a chance for being the goat of all goats if he gives up. So that's why this is so cool. <clears throat> the pressure is going to be on these players to watch them perform. I know Cody, Cody Allen said that when he came out to try to clinch the series against Boston in the divisional series, he was more nervous than he was when he came out to try to clinch the series against Toronto because he had never been in that situation before. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it's you know, different. Now, yeah. yeah, it's different. So, all right, it brings it right down to this, the managers. Does either team have an advantage in the managing? I don't think so. I, mean, I don't either. These are, these are proven, proven entities who know their stuff. They're, they're loved by their players. Uh, you know, any manager can make a blunder, but at this level, these guys have proved themselves, and I, I think whatever they decide, the fans are going to go along with them. So, um, well, look, this is going to be this, this is a series you and I predicted would happen. We wanted it to happen back in spring training. We thought these were the best teams in baseball, and uh, we'll see what's going to happen. Absolutely. All right. So, it's come down to the end of the show. Mark, your prediction. I think the Cubs are going to sweep them. No, I'm just kidding, Dave. I wanted to get a rise out of you. Uh, no, I, I, think the, I think the Cubs in six. I am going to take the Cubs in seven. I'm going to stick with my prediction from the beginning of the year. I think it's going to be heartbreak for the Indians in Cleveland in game seven. Unfortunately, if, if it goes to seven and they lose, it's probably what should happen based on everybody's predictions. Everybody says the Cubs should win. I think they are a better team. They should win it. That's why I think I'm picking them in six. But a seven-game series with these two teams would be exciting to watch. And no matter what happens, the Cleveland fans ought to be very, very happy and proud of this team. Well, the Cubs were expected to be in the World Series. That's right. The Indians were the underdogs against Boston. They won. They were the underdogs going in against Toronto. They won. They're the underdogs going into this World Series. The latest ESPN poll, as we kind of talked about it at the beginning of the show, Mark, has the Cubs winning this series 64% to 36% saying the Indians 
will win the series. The schedule for the series, tomorrow night and Wednesday in Cleveland, then Friday, Saturday, and Sundays for games four, uh, 3, 4, and 5 if necessary in Chicago, and then the series comes back next Tuesday, Wednesday for game 7 if necessary, and all the games start at 8.08 p.m. Mark, we'll be back again next Monday night, and hopefully we're talking about an Indians win or game six and seven coming up. All right. Sounds like fun. All right. That's going to do it. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you next week. That's going to do it for tonight's show. So happy that you stuck around with us here this evening for this extra long show here on the UltimateSportsTalk.com of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. But because the Indians are in the World Series, hey, we've got to talk about this. Should be fairly interesting. Should be very interesting, I guess I should say. Don't forget, coming up this Friday night, we've got our final high school football game of the season. Norwayne will be at Waynedale. We'll be on the air with the pregame show at 6.30. The kickoff at 7. Golden Bear Rewind starts everything off at 6 o'clock. And Mark and I will be back again next Monday night with what could be the final edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show for this season. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. Most of all, our thanks to you for listening, sticking around here this evening for this extra long edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell for Mark Donahue. Go Tribe, game one tomorrow night, and it's all on Fox. Talk to you again next Monday night. Good night, everybody. The Wiz kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. Yogi read the comics all the while Rock and roll was being born Marijuana we would scorn So down on the corner the national pastime went on trial We're talking baseball Klazuski, Campanella Talking baseball The man and Bobby Feller The scooter, the barber and the nuke They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque Especially with 